Tonight's Dharma talk is on the gift of sila. The Pali word sila is uh, often translated as morality, sometimes translated as virtue. Since both of those um, translations can have a little bit of sometimes um, difficult connotations for people, I like ethical conduct. One teacher I read about uh, described sila as cleaning up your act. People often aren't too excited when I tell them that I'm going to be speaking on sila. And I was reflecting about that today, like, you know, where do we get stuck when we hear that we're going to have a talk on sila? And I wonder if some of it doesn't have to do with our uh, uh, predominant Judeo-Christian background in this country where there's a sense of when we talk about ethics or morality that we're somehow going to be judged for our sins. And I was thinking this morning that we even have a judgmental Santa Claus in this, in this country. You know, he's making his list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice, who's nice and um, then... Uh, appropriately rewarded or not. So I think we have this strong conditioning within us when we are talking about uh, ethical conduct um, of a certain kind of fear of being judged. And so I want to just start out by uh, suggesting that we put that um, framework aside and that we um, frame our conversation of sila as a learning ground for what causes suffering and what causes happiness. So thinking of sila, and I often use the Pali word because that seems um, the easiest for us. So thinking about sila as a place where we can explore in order to bring more happiness into our own lives and happiness into the lives of all those whom we touch. So we can think of sila as our relational practice. It's our practice in how we relate to others and how we relate to the world. And so I'm going to encourage us to put aside um, um, the attitude of judgment that may come with uh, morality or virtue, and think about the development of wisdom and compassion. So what is sila? Sila is living our lives in a non-harming manner, in a manner that brings peace to ourselves and to others. So it's living our lives from a metta place, from a loving-kindness place, from a compassionate space. It's considered the foundation of our formal practice. It's also a natural consequence of walking the path that our uh, sila develops. Charlotte Joko Beck says, a, a Zen teacher, one of my favorites, she says, Practice can be stated very simply. It is moving from a life of hurting myself and others to a life of not hurting myself and others. So that could be a, sum, a summary of sila. Sila, the practice of sila is based in compassion. It comes from our innate sense of compassion and our innate sense of what is right. It's not talked so much, um, so much about in the Theravada scriptures, but in the Mahayana scriptures, it's talked about very much that the ground of our being is responsive compassion. That responsive compassion is inseparable from our true nature. So we don't have to create it, we don't have to fabricate it. But what we do need to do is see what blocks that 
responsive and compassionate heart. So our sila practice can be seen as discovering our innate sense of morality and also seeing what blocks that. Sila practice uh, is a great support for our meditation practice because it works against our self-centeredness. We're asking ourselves questions about what is right, what is true, what is helpful, what is skillful, what's beneficial. And that's not always what we want. It may even be what we don't want. Our sila may even be inconvenient at times. But we see through studying our practice that it leads to peace. As most of you know, because you're experienced meditators, sila uh, occupies a central place in the Buddha's teachings. Wherever the Buddha preached, he stressed the importance of a good foundation, a good moral foundation as a cornerstone of practicing meditation. Sometimes the Buddha is described as a physician um, curing our, our, our disease of craving. And part of the course of, the, of his treatment was sila. And this is expressed in various ways in the, in the scriptures. Um, there's the three parts of the practice for lay people. Generosity, sila, and mind development. We also see that sila is emphasized in the Noble Eightfold Path, where three steps are about skillful conduct in the world, skillful action, skillful speech, and skillful livelihood. Or we can look at sila in the precepts that we took just a few minutes ago. And lay Buddhists around the world take these five precepts, or at times the eight precepts, as a way of committing ourselves to sila, and a way of giving ourselves some guidelines that can help us point in the right direction. A number of years ago, Myoshin and I and another teacher went to Lowell, Massachusetts to meet with a Cambodian meditation master there. And we just wanted to talk with him and tell him about what we are doing over here and see what, what, uh, what opinions he might have about it. And so we told him about how we do retreats and people come and they stay for a while. And he kind of, um, you know, how we teach them meditation and all. And he kind of shook his head for a minute and he said, better to start with sila. Now that doesn't mean you guys should all go home and... Uh, uh, abandon your practice and um, just focus on sila. But I think he was pointing um, towards the importance of sila as a support for our practice. It's easier to meditate when we've cleaned up our act. That's what I think he was pointing towards. Anyway, I love talking about sila. I think it's, um, for me, it's such a fruitful part of practice. It's pretty concrete. You know, we're doing things, saying things. But it's also challenging because it's complex at times to know what is right. It's complex uh, sometimes to do what is right, even when we know. But it's a beautiful expression of the heart of our practice and our understanding about happiness. The Buddha called it a great gift, offering freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to countless beings. 
and that while we offer these freedoms to others, we receive a share of it ourselves. Mark Twain, who uh, is quite, it seems like he was quite an interesting guy. He had a lot of interesting things to say. He says, always do what is right. It will gratify half of mankind and astound the other. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how sila um, purifies our minds and makes them ripe for meditation. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about how meditation purifies our sila and our sensitivity to ethical conduct. They work together. So sila as a foundation for practice. Living a life committed to integrity and ethical conduct calms our minds so that we can go more deeply into practice. It's often said that the depth one goes in practice is related to the development of our paramis, of which sila is one. As some of you know, most of you know I'm doing a series on the paramis. So it's said that the depth one will go to in practice is determined by our sila and our paramis. Sometimes the metaphor of a lake is used. If a lake is calm, you can see deeply into the depths. And if it's disturbed, then you can't see very deeply. And it's said that unethical acts disturb the mind. It's like putting the waves on the lake so that we can't see. If we are living our lives in unethical ways, we will often experience great remorse and great regret and turbulence, perhaps worrying about the um, consequences of our actions. That is the whipping up of the water. Or sometimes we might not experience regret and remorse, but there's a kind of denial in our minds about um, the consequences of our actions. And denial also disturbs the mind. It takes energy to deny something. It twists the mind. We find that our minds and our hearts open best where there's honesty and integrity. So we often, we also see, likewise, that if we are engaged in um, beneficial conduct, if we're um, engaged with generosity and kindness, that these too affect our mind, but in a way that makes our minds light and malleable and um, easy to meditate with. I sometimes tell people if they don't um, believe in the law of karma, all we have to do is just see the imprint of how we live on our minds. And there you have karma in action. That if we are um, uh, creating a lot of suffering, that our minds will be unhappy. And that if we're spreading um, uh, beneficial energy and beneficial actions, that our mind will be happy. The Buddha said that one of the main blessings of living a life of integrity or or ethical integrity is uh, the bliss of blamelessness or non-remorse. So the bliss of blamelessness is the happiness of a clear conscience. It's really a precious kind of happiness. to know that we've done our best to live in a way that doesn't harm. And we'll get later into the talk by, you know, that's not always so easy. (laughs) We also have to forgive ourselves when when we mess up. But uh, when we've done the best and have that intention to 
towards non-harming. It makes our minds happy. The Sufi mystic Hafiz says, what does purity do? It cuts the plow reins. It frees you from working and dining in the mud. It frees you from living behind a big ox that is always breaking wind. What can purity do, my dear? It can lift your heart on a rising bucking sun that makes the soul hunger to reach the roof of creation. It offers what the whole world wants, real knowledge and power. It offers what the wise crave, the priceless treasure of freedom. So in this way, living a life of integrity protects us from ourselves. It protects us from living behind a farting ox, as Afiz says. The precepts that we took tonight um, are um, guidelines that help us to uh, help support our sila, help us to live in a more harmonious and peaceful way. So they point out potential problem areas. It's like these five problem areas. These are areas where you can easily cause suffering. So pay attention here. That's what they're saying. And that's how I use them. I use them as like red flags. I'll be about to do something. And, and since I know the precepts quite well, you know, a little flag will start going in my mind. Oops. <laughs> I just remember recently I was, um, I, uh, I was in Burma in January and I had to take five airplanes each way. And I was very attached to having a little pillow from the airplane on each flight. <laughs> you know, they don't give out pillows like they used to. So um, on one flight I had a pillow and I thought, well, maybe I'll just put the pillow in my knapsack and take it to the next flight. It's the same airlines. I'm not taking it from them. Uh, but I'll for sure have a pillow. And then it was like, hmm, second precept. They aren't giving me this pillow to put in my bag and take to the next flight. So I left it. The precept, just knowing the precepts, helped flag for me a place where I was about to do something that was unethical. And I could have justified it to myself and all, but but really, it wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe they count the number of pillows or need the number of pillows on the flight that I was on. And we may say, well, the pillows, it's not such a big thing. But yet, um, when we do things like that, it conditions our mind in a certain way. It conditions our mind to not respect uh, um, other people's property and what's given to us or not given to us. So it is important in that way. And I'm glad I left the pillow behind and there was a pillow on the next flight. So the precepts help, um, help keep us out of trouble, basically. They help keep our minds free of weeds so that we can cultivate them easily. Once I, uh, I did a retreat with Upandita, and um, the last morning I, I offered him a, a fruit salad as I was leaving for breakfast. And so we were just chatting, and he says to me, is it selfish to follow the, uh, follow the precepts? And I think what he was pointing towards is that when we follow the precepts, it's good for us. It's not just good for others, but it's good for us. So there's a way that um, at the level of karma, that is good karma for us to follow the precepts. As you all probably know, the law of karma says that as we uh, sow, so shall we reap. As we, what we put out in the world uh, will come back to us. 
that there are consequences for our actions. And so when we live a, an ethical life, it's a gift that we give to ourselves. And when we learn not to, when we learn to control our impulses that cause suffering, we give ourselves this gift of happiness and simplicity of mind and heart. It's great stress reduction, following the precepts, keeping good sila. I remember a number of years ago, I, I bought a new car. And um, through some kind of complicated, I can't remember all the ins and outs of it, but I bought it on a Friday afternoon around 4. And I wasn't sure I wanted to put full coverage on it. I didn't have full coverage on my prior car. And the, and the agent said something like, well, you can tell me on Monday. And um, over the weekend, my goddaughter uh, cracked the windshield. And so on my old policy, I would have had not had that covered. But if I, I it was a, I'd have to lie. All I remember is that I'd have to lie to get it covered, but I could do it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, windshields aren't so, so cheap. So I was like, hmm, what to do here? So I go, finally I decide that, no, I'm not going to lie. I don't care. I'll just pay for the windshield. And so I went to the, my agent. I told her, you know, what had happened, but I told her I wasn't going to lie. And she was just, like, astounded. She told everybody in the, in the agency, look, she's not going to lie about it. She was going to let me lie. She was going to support me lying. Um, but when I thought about it, if I lied about the windshield, I was going to have to keep track of so many details, and I was going to have to make sure that I told the story right to the right people. It's like, how stressful. It was so much easier not to lie and to just pay for the windshield. So we see that when we live um, uh, breaking the precepts or when, we're, or when we don't have this commitment to integrity that we actually create more stress in our lives. And that by having a commitment to the precepts, we reduce the stress in our lives. So the law of karma says that actions have consequences. Sometimes it's likened to planting seeds. If you plant an apple seed, you'll get an apple tree. If you plant a chili pepper seed, you'll get a chili pepper. When the conditions are right, when the right conditions come together. And this is understood as a law of the universe. It's not understood as some kind of punishment for our actions but it's understood that this is how the universe functions and that it's a natural law like, like gravity. If I hold a pencil, it'll fall towards the ground. That's a law of the universe. And another law of the universe is that our actions have consequences in accordance with um, the energy behind the action or the motivation. It's a beautiful thing because it's also a constant feedback loop that each moment we have this karma we inherit from the past, we inherit from the past and then we have the present what we feed into the present and that feed in that um, determines the future so there's always this chance at every moment to put new feedback into the system feedback um, leading into a more positive and a happier um, direction. So it's also a very positive understanding of the universe. That each moment is a fresh moment to create uh, positive energy and happiness. But it's also a, an understanding of the universe that um, it's like uh, the ultimate understanding of personal responsibility for our lives and for our actions of thought, our actions of speech, our actions of body. It's said that our actions are our only true belongings. 
that the consequences of our actions are the only thing that we get to keep in, in uh, this constantly changing world through the law of karma. So as I said, when we talk about ethics in Buddhism, what is most stressed is um, the motivation behind our actions. So it's really important to question the motivations behind our actions and to develop a, a deep understanding of our motivations. And so if our, if our actions are inspired by greed or aversion or delusion, ignorance, then surely suffering will follow. And if our actions are inspired by uh, compassion and love, clear seeing, wisdom, then surely good will follow. But the truth is it's not always so easy to determine our motivations. Often our motivations are very mixed or sometimes we can be very good at hiding from ourselves our motivations. And that's why the precepts can be so helpful. They can steer us in the right direction. Thich Han calls them like the North Star, a, a navigational tool. So we can think of the precepts as a navigational tool for ourselves as we move through our lives. And they help us with the tricky waters, the tricky places, help us navigate. So as I said, with, with our practice of sila, we really are stressing learning. We're learning to fine-tune our own innate moral nature. We're learning to explore what leads to long-term happiness rather than fleeting happiness. And through the teachings, we're encouraged to observe our actions and to see what kinds of results they bring so that we can learn. So we can learn which will go in the direction of happiness and which will go in the direction of sorrow. Sila, however, is quite complex. It's not always easy to say what's the right thing to do. And uh, so it's also very situational. I tell the story sometimes of years ago here at IMS when I was on staff um, down at the retreat center um, in a long time ago, like 23 years ago, 24 years ago. Um, we had a little problem with cockroaches. They were uh, everywhere, and it, it got pretty bad. They were even crawling on the tables in the dining room. And so there was this huge debate. Back then, um, it was, the center was totally run by volunteers. There was nobody in charge. As Sharon Salzberg used to say, it was run with no adult supervision whatsoever. Um, it, it was fun, but it was um, uh, a little more freeform than it is today. So, so there were these, we'd have these uh, long discussions in staff meetings about what to do about the cockroaches. And um, we were trying to live by the precepts, which would say you don't kill cockroaches. But they were running over the place, so what's the right thing to do? We tried asking the cockroaches to leave. They, they didn't go. <laughs> Finally, we gave him an ultimatum. <laughs> Said, you got a week. <laughs> Finally, somebody on staff says, you know what? We got to do something about the cockroaches, and I'll just take the karma. I'll do it. 
Um, but it, that's a really hard situation, you know? I, um, I have a garden. I have a vegetable garden. So, you know, I always have this question of how do I um, cultivate a, a, um, vegetables without killing bugs. I'm actually, I seem to be pretty lucky. I don't have many bug problems, actually. Um, and I kind of think, well, you know, I, I kind of tell the bugs, you know, I'll give you a third. How's that? <laughs> you can have a third of my harvest. Um, but sometimes, you know, I pick them off and transport them somewhere else. Or sometimes, um, for a couple years, I didn't grow squash because the squash bugs were just too hard to figure out what to do with. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't kill them. I used to sometimes, but I don't anymore. But, you know, I have to be creative figuring out how to have a garden without killing bugs. And I have to not always eat what I want. <laughs> There's a story I got out of the Sun magazine. I'm not going to get anywhere near through all this stuff. Let's see about this. I just I found this story intriguing, so I'm going to share it with you. When I was in the fifth grade, we watched a film strip on what a film strip. We used to have film strips back in those days on what to do if we saw someone stealing. A few days later, at the Pig Wiggly grocery store, I saw a man standing in front of the canned soups and looking around nervously. Though it was a warm day, he was wearing a trench coat and he seemed to be putting cans in his pockets. I did what the film strip had told me to do. I informed my mother, who told the store clerk, and in a few minutes, the police were there. As my mother was putting my favorite breakfast cereal on the checkout belt, I saw them handcuffing the man, who was listless and stoic. Noticing his faded clothing, I wasn't sure I had done the right thing. Every day after school, I walked to the Episcopal Church, where I took ballet lessons. Some kids from, quote-unquote, Brown Town, a poor, mostly black neighborhood behind the church, used to play with the other students and me in the old graveyard that was a buffer between our communities. Mrs. Ryan, our ballet teacher, would always shoo the kids away before the class started, but sometimes they would sneak back and watch us through the old screen door. They were spunky, and I liked them, especially Bevy and her cousin. The day after the grocery store incident, Mrs. Ryan was late for my lesson, so I sat and talked with Bevy and her cousin on the steps. They told me they were sad because their uncle was in jail. He lived with them and took care of them. When I asked why he was in jail, they said he'd gotten caught stealing food for them from the Piggly Wiggly. That night, Mr. Lassiter, the grocery store owner, called me to tell me what a wonderful thing I'd done. I knew he was wrong. From that day on, I began to think for myself. Seal is not always simple. It's not always easy to know what to do. I read a great book a number of years ago called Moral Fitness, and it was about, um, really, it wasn't written by Buddhists, but it was about developing our sila, or our capacity to think about ethics, so that we would be um, kind of more fit to make uh, good decisions in ethical situations that are difficult. They told the story of a policeman who, um, in this book, who uh, he was called, or he saw, I think he saw an accident in front of him, or he was called, I think, to an accident. I'm not totally sure. I think he was called to an accident where a truck driver had um, run into something, and the truck driver was pinned into the cab of the of the um, truck, and um, there was a fire that had started, and it was clear that the truck driver wasn't going to get out before he got burned to death. And so the truck driver was saying to the policeman, please shoot me, you know, don't make me go through this. And the policeman's like, he just didn't feel right doing that. He's like, what? 
what do you do? So what's the most compassionate thing to do in a situation like that? And um, the policeman apparently was a smart thinker and he went back to the, um, the, the police car and had, where there was a fire extinguisher. Now he couldn't put out the fire, it was too big for that. But apparently he, put, he blasted the man's face with it and um, that that would make, make him unconscious supposedly, some of the chemicals in there or whatever. So he did. So he relieved him from his suffering, but without um, doing something that felt so wrong to him. But it's a tricky question. It's a tricky situation. So we better move on here to uh, the second part. With how does sila? Um, so we talked about how sila affects our meditation. How does meditation affect sila? How does our meditation practice support sila? And there's a couple of ways that it does it. Through opening our hearts of compassion and through refining our mindfulness. The Zen master uh, Yasutani says, in a profounder sense, observance of the precepts is grounded in meditation practice because through practice, one gradually rids oneself of the basic delusion that leads to commit harm, namely the delusion that the world and oneself are separate and distinct. The world doesn't stand outside of me. It is me. So our causing harm comes out of a sense of self-centeredness and self-absorption with a lack of understanding of our interconnectedness. And with mindfulness, we start to see how intimately connected we are to others and how our actions affect others. One version of the precepts that I uh, use in some retreats that I like a lot the beginning of each precept uh, starts with knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. So knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the mindfulness training to protect life. So that's that foundation of, of sila, is knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. So through our practice of sila and through our meditation practice, we explore our hearts and our minds and we see when we make others separate or make ourselves separate. We explore our self-centeredness and encourage living more from compassion and wisdom, the wisdom of the heart. And so our sila and meditation practice call on us to explore all sides of the heart, all the shadows of the heart, to bring them forward so that they can be seen and known and don't control us. And this very search into our hearts to understand them deeply opens the door of compassion. We understand that we share our humanity with others. The Buddha said that mindfulness is the guardian of karma. So mindfulness supports and develops our sila by helping us to learn restraint. So we get to understand our thoughts and our emotions and how they can dominate us and lead us into unskillful actions. We learn how to work effectively with thoughts and emotions, intentions. We can witness emotional chain reactions. 
And so we develop this ability to wait out impulses of the mind and heart that would lead towards suffering. We learn to practice restraint. The Buddha uh, gave a set of guidelines about how to um, contemplate the actions we're about to take in a, in a discourse where he's talking to his son, Rahula. And his advice to Rahula is, um, before you take an action of speech, an action of body, to reflect, is this action going to lead to suffering for myself or others? And if so, don't do it. <laughs> and to reflect, is it not going to lead to suffering? Then it's okay to do it. And then he, so he said to reflect before you take an action, to reflect during an action, is this action causing suffering? If so, stop. Is this action not causing suffering? Okay, it's okay. And then afterwards, did this action cause suffering? myself or others? If so, uh, commit to not doing it again. And if not, it's all right. In Buddhism, it's even considered if you're going to do something unskillful, to do it consciously so you can learn from it. We often think that if we're going to do something unskillful, kind of pretend you're not doing it or uh, somehow... Um, uh, block awareness, but no, it's best to do it with awareness so you can learn. There's two um, mental factors that support this learning. They're said to be the um, proximate cause of good sila. And the translations are moral shame and moral dread, which are a little intense. <laughs> um, I just think of it as um, moral uh, shame and moral dread is just um, knowing when we've done something unskillful that we did something unskillful that led to suffering. And uh, knowing if we're about to do something unskillful, that it'll lead to suffering. So it's basically about understanding the consequences of our actions. And moral shame means, oh, I did something that wasn't skillful. Hmm. To know that. And moral dread means, uh-huh, if I do this, I think it's not going to lead in a good direction. Shouldn't do it. It's kind of like critical thinking skills understanding and taking time to reflect on our actions and the consequences of them. And the Buddha distinguished this from guilt. This isn't about guilt, which is where we often go. Guilt's like this whole story about myself related to what I do. Oh, I'm a bad person. I always do that. I'm so bad I shouldn't have done it. It's not that sense. That's guilt. What we're talking about here is just seeing clearly, oh, I did that, not so skillful, didn't work out so well. So we have to also be willing to forgive ourselves when, when we do unskillful things. We all do. Till we're completely enlightened, I think we all do. It happens. One meditation master said, life is one continuous mistake. But we can learn from our mistakes. That's what I like to emphasize.
The Zen master, uh, Zen teacher Norman Fisher says, it is precisely our moral mistakes more than our moral victories that deepen our sense of what ethical conduct is. So we can appreciate the times that we don't act in the ways we wish we would or don't, um, are, are overtaken by greed or um, aversion and act unskillfully. We can appreciate them for what they teach us. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a very explicit teaching about this that I like, about um, recognizing our mistakes. It's said that, um, that there are four strengths that help us to uh, steer ourselves towards more positive um, karma. The first one is to recognize and admit when we cause harm. The second one is to feel regret for our action. The third is to engage in some practice or some, um, do something that will eliminate, eliminate why we engaged in the harmful action in the first place. So maybe we make amends or maybe we um, find ways that will support us not repeating that mistake. Like for example, I like to, I don't like to, sometimes I get impatient when I'm driving and I'll tailgate people. And what I've learned is if I leave the house 10 minutes earlier, I won't do that. So that would be a making amends, find, or, or doing some action that helps me not to do uh, the harmful action. And then the fourth one is resolve not to do it again. And so for doing these things, we're really doing the best we can. And we can uh, be happy about that. Like I said, this. Uh, uh, this discussion of ethical conduct doesn't need to be heavy. We can actually be happy for what we learn, and we can be happy for, we can even be happy for the regret for what we've done wrong because that motivates us. To feel the regret motivates us to um, steer in a way that leads towards happiness. We can be happy about our commitment to non-harming, even if we don't always follow through perfectly. It's not uncommon that people will find on retreat that um, we'll go through periods where where we'll remember uh, unskillful actions. My first retreat at IMS, a long retreat there, I went through this period, it seemed like it lasted for weeks, of remembering, it felt like I was remembering every unskillful thing I'd done in my life. Obviously I didn't, but it just um, just was a stream of uh, memories, and, and they weren't even such huge things. I remembered one of them was I had, uh, a friend had lent me a shirt, and I liked it a lot, so I kept forgetting to return it kind of on purpose, forgetting. And another one was that before I'd come to the retreat, I'd been staying at my father's house. I borrowed some sheets from his house to take to the retreat, and I didn't ask him. You know, so they weren't like huge, huge things, but um, there were a lot of them, and it was like, wow. It really, um, first of all, I felt a lot of regret, and then it really helped me to refine my sense of, of uh, sila, that regret motivated me to say, oh, I, I want to be really more, much more careful with my actions. Oh, it's late. We're going to have to end. Let's see here. Maybe that's enough. In the Buddhist literature, sometimes the precepts have been described as seeing the light of the fire in a dark place, a prisoner being released, a poor person finding a jewel, 
returning home. So the precepts point us back towards our Buddha nature, towards our home in um, our compassionate heart. I'll end with a quote by Upandita. In this world, there is no greater adornment than purity of conduct, no greater refuge, and no other basis for the flowering of insight and wisdom. Sila brings a beauty that is not plastered onto the outside, but instead comes from the heart and is reflected in the entire person. Suitable for everyone, regardless of age, station, or circumstance, truly it is the adornment of all seasons. So please be sure to keep your sila fresh and alive. Let's sit for just a minute. Let's chant the sharing of the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.